Hello and welcome. I'm Alice Judge Talbot, author of The Backup Plan, a book that celebrates how to make the best out of plan B. There are moments in all our lives where we have no choice but to rethink what our future may look like. It's in losing sight of this path that can lead us to discover new versions of success. To celebrate the fact we all have a backup plan, I'll be hearing from guests who have discovered magic in unconventional circumstances and found their own version of success and happiness. Welcome to the Backup Plan. Before we hear from our main guest, I'm delighted to share a brilliant conversation I had with one of the many incredible sellers from Etsy, the sponsors of this podcast. We'll learn how Etsy has supported their sellers' own backup plans so they can grow their businesses, build their teams and follow their passions. Margot McDade is an Irish-born Kent-based artist. She's always been a natural creative. From studying metalwork design at university to teaching, she's found it to be a really important outlet in her life. I wanted to draw really small pictures and, mm-hmm. and sell them and it's a really simple business model and when I looked about the simplest, most straightforward way of doing that, Etsy came up trumps. When did you notice that your plan B had become your plan A? I sold a piece of work to Dee Campling and when she posted that on her Instagram feed, I sold 50 prints, limited wow. edition, within a week. I suppose really that was the moment where it mm-hmm. took off. I think Etsy has been so instrumental in making art accessible. 95% of what you sell comes back to you as Mm -hmm. an artist. That means you can really, you know, not just survive as an artist, but thrive. Mm. What has been one of the highlights in growing your business through Etsy? It really is about working around my family. And I think it's very much about being present in the life that you want to live. What advice would you give to someone thinking about starting their own business to sell on Etsy? Be empowered, be creative, put it out there. You know, self-belief is everything. Mm -hmm. Do it. So nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Thank you. Asma Khan is chef and owner of Darjeeling Express in London. She was the first British chef to star in Netflix's award-winning and brilliant Chef's Table. Having completed a law PhD, Asma couldn't even boil an egg, and driven by homesickness for the comfort of the royal Mughlai cuisine she'd grown up with, she returned to India to learn how to cook. The rest, as they say, is history. The Darjeeling Express opened a few years ago in Kingley Court and is one of the most lauded Indian restaurants in the city. The restaurant is solely staffed by women from South Asia, none of whom have been traditionally trained how to cook, with a percentage of its profits donated to the Second Daughters charity, which aims to empower second-born daughters in India. When researching Asma and her work, it became clear quickly that she has touched many with the superlatives used to describe her off the charts. Inspired, inspiring, bold, talented, unstoppable and warm. I'm so thrilled to welcome Asma today to discuss her life, her journey and her backup plan. Asma, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really, really thrilled to meet you. Thank you very much. I was really quite touched, actually, when I watched your show on Netflix. I felt quite moved by it, um, which wasn't something I expected from a show about food. Um, But your love, admiration and belief in women is so palpable in everything you do and was so moving from the story you told. Where do you think that passion that you have for females comes from? I think it was from my mother. My mother is one of five daughters. And she always was, you know, always uh, standing up for other women. And, you know, she's a very traditional Indian housewife, you know, coming from 
a royal family herself, married mm-hmm. into one. So not someone who would expect to have, you know, uh, read a lot of political things. Mm-hmm. Of, of, and, you know, I'm talking about, you know, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no internet. There's no, so you know, you need to go to a library and, you know, read something. Mm-hmm. I think driven by her faith. Mm-hmm. It was about, you know, trying to make sure that you did good. Yeah. That you didn't harm anyone. Mm-hmm. And if you could help someone, you must help them. It's your duty to help. Which is what faith should really be about, you I know. Agree, yeah. Not about, you know what anyone else is and who you are and who you're not. And I remember going as a child with her to the slums. Mm-hmm. The night a husband left his wife because she had two daughters. Yeah. And that night, basically, that woman was a prostitute because mm. she had no income. Mm. So she, all she had to sell was herself. Mm-hmm. And my, I remember my mother standing in this slum mm-hmm. uh, telling everybody, she works for me. Mm-hmm. Nobody touches her. Tomorrow wow. morning, she starts work with me. And we used to hate this, that, you know, suddenly some strange woman would turn up in our house, you know, completely unscaled uh, with, you know, crying, snotty children. Mm-hmm. And we used to think, oh, God, you know, our mother is this awful person. She keeps picking up people from the slums and bringing them there. But, you know, I think at some point I understood, I mm-hmm. saw that look of relief in the woman's eyes. I think that really did something to me. It was a very small gesture on my mother's part. Mm-hmm. She went there, she stood there, she stood by this woman. publicly in the entire slum saying no one walks into this house. That must have been so unusual in a world where women were so clearly second-class citizens. Yeah, and also very unusual for the background my mother was, Mm. for her to rock up in a slum. Uh, But it didn't cost my mother anything. Mm -hmm. She just had to stick her neck out a bit, Mm -hmm. go out and make an effort and verbally tell someone, I'm standing by you. But hearing this story, it sounds like you do an exact same thing for women. You give power to the powerless. Yes, all the women in your restaurant come from South Asian families. Um, they're not culinary trained. No. Which to me is madness. I was thinking about this and thinking, actually, to be a good cook, you don't need to be trained. You need no. passion and skill. The average age in my kitchen mm-hmm. at the moment is 50. Wow. Uh, I have two grandmoms in my kitchen and I have uh, three women over 60. And you can't beat their life experience. Yeah. And forget the hours that they've done in the kitchen. They're just very calm. By the time you hit 50, you're not interested in having a useless conversation. Yeah. You're not going to shout at anybody. You're not giving instructions. Yeah. Because I think women in their 50s have reached that point in their lives when they know that you get the work done, not by screaming, not mm-hmm. by shouting, not by hierarchy. I've lucked out because, mm-hmm. you know, these women are at peace. And even the younger women who come in have mm-hmm. adopted that same attitude. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, younger women now coming in in their 20s. And they're great. And they just say that we feel so safe yeah. in this space. That ethos, I think, though, should work in every facet of yeah, life. That, it does. That kind, kindness and respect is how, how things get done. Yeah. It's how you get productivity. It's how you create great greatness. It's not from dictatorship or, or meanness or masculinity. It's kind of softness and, and kindness. And that's yeah. really where magic happens, I feel. I realised the moment that... Netflix approached me. We mm-hmm. were not even a year old. Wow. My first feeling was not about me or what was going to happen to the kitchen or how we were going to cope. I just said, oh my God, it's going to change the entire game yeah. for us, yeah. all women in yeah. hospitality. Yeah. Because this is a game changer. I am the face of change. You know, it just happens to have been me. It could have been anyone. But it is important that it is an immigrant, 50-year-old female-owned business, Mm -hmm. that is big because, you know, unfortunately, a lot you do have a lot of very, very talented female chefs 
who have Michelin stars mm-hmm. in this country, but I've yet to see their team mm-hmm. or their female sous chef mm-hmm. or who who work who they work with. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I thought of was that I'm not going to do this alone. Mm-hmm. This is my chance to bring the team on board, but also to tell the story of how women work as collectives. Mm-hmm. So when chefs table. rocked up to see me i said this you're going to have to do this differently yeah. you're going to have to show my team you're going to have to let me present my so team so that bit came from you not from them yes yes and one of them laughed and said i've been doing this since 2015 and not a single chef has asked us to show you are anyone. joking well have you ever seen another episode where they've shown the team no i have not well, <laughs> it's all it's all about the chef isn't it it's not yeah. about the community it's about the chef yes it always is about the chef yeah but i stand on their shoulders like a lot of women leaders do mm. they stand on shoulders of other people mm-hmm. and i think that for those women especially who don't acknowledge mm. who they're standing on mm-hmm. i think that is so wrong i always tell everybody i'm not interested in breaking the glass ceiling i want to bring the entire edifice down mm. because that gives space for everyone to come on and fit all of us in that space because that is my victory mm. i am not free if the women around me are in chains I then how am I free? It's if it's just my mm-hmm. me having hit the grass ceiling and come out and be the one and only. Um no, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be the only one. Well there is a quote I think you said at the end of Chef's Kitchen, um this is what happens to women when other women stand by them. Yeah. And that again that really moved me because no one ever talks about that. Yeah. It's even with women I think it's a very competitive we're very competitive with each other, but I think society pits ourselves. Yeah. ourselves against each other. Yeah. I also I think that you know the the way you see other people succeed, mm. you think this is how you play the game. Mm. No you don't. Mm-hmm. I've shown how you can play the game another way. Mm-hmm. You know, food is the great leveler because when we are cooking together, we're all at one level, but it also lifts us all up at the mm. same time and you know, it's a joy to work. Mm. So going back to your early life and early ambition because it wasn't your first ambition to own and run a restaurant. No. How did you see your life panning out? You did a law degree. I did the law degree to impress my parents. Mm-hmm. And also I'm married to an academic. I just thought that, you know, he might think I'm smart. Uh so I I basically did the law degree for everybody else. The PhD I did for myself because it was something I really was interested in. Uh and I thought that, you know, I'm married to an academic mm-hmm. and you know, all our friends are teaching, I also teach. Then I decided I figured out I hate teaching, but I was too embarrassed to admit mm-hmm. to my completely committed academic husband who thinks teaching is the best thing in the world mm-hmm. how horrible it was i hated it i was completely terrified of students and i thought why am i going to do this to my life mm. i just thought i'm going to do something to do with cooking even street stall or something mm-hmm. you know i did one street stall uh, it rained so much uh, there was a short circuit in the fryer oh, all the samosas got wet i never went back to the street again yep. it was such a disaster so that i had to eliminate then i did the supper clubs mm. uh, in my own house Mm. And it worked. When you learned how to cook, your mother taught you how to cook. Yes. But did I mean what kind of process was that? How did that even work? Well, I I was I went back the first summer after I got married and I told her I was very unhappy. Mm-hmm. I was struggling. I told her I didn't want to go back. Uh which would have been a huge scandal in mm. the family, you know, you I mean now of course it's it's much more liberal, but at that time this the shame of, you know, me coming back uh, leaving my husband was too much and she was like you know you don't like your husband i said no he's okay mm. i just don't like the food mm. he cooks terrible food i could stick myself on the ceiling with the rice he made it was so sticky <laughs> it was so sticky i mean really he was like 
really poor cook. Yeah. I told her that, you know, if I cooked, I'd be happy. Were you talented at cooking straight away? Yeah. I was surprised with myself. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think maybe I did know how to cook. Mm -hmm. I just had never done it Mm -hmm. because I spent so much time in the kitchen with my mother and my aunts, you know, hanging around watching food being cooked. Also, everyone made me work, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, bring this, bring that. So I also like doing things. Mm -hmm. You know, I like being with all my female relatives. I enjoyed their company. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I, I was just someone who always liked to be in a group. Which is probably what I've recreated. I've mm. created a group of women. Uh, it was just this kind of big kind of herd of women together. Mm. And uh, it felt like a tribe. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to be, the kitchen. And I love how you've carried that family feel of your kitchen through to the kitchen in Soho. Yeah, and, and the other thing is that I often tell this to people when I am and demos, that, you know, the most expensive ingredient you put in a dish is your time. Mm. The saffron and all this expensive meat and... Whatever else you bought, you can buy that again. Mm -hmm. You can never get your time back. So, you know, spend it well. Give it time. It needs love and time Mm -hmm. because this moment that you're cooking will never come back. So make it count. Yeah. Eating is like a hug from the inside out. Yes, absolutely. It's a way of loving, loving yourself. That's why you should never limit what you eat. You should never restrict your food because it's it's a way of of loving yourself. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. As a lover of all things unique and special, Etsy is my shopping playground. It's the marketplace I turn to for cards, interiors, clothes and jewellery, and I'm so happy to be a small business supporting other small businesses. Thanks, Etsy, for supporting this podcast. How do you believe that the stigma of second daughters affects girls from day dot? It's obviously it's a huge thing in India and something I wasn't very aware of until I watched the Netflix show. Um, But it must so affect a girl's life to be born a second daughter and to know that that is not the optimum position for their family to be in. How do you think that affects women from a really young age? No one talks about it. Mm -hmm. I think I was the first voice that a lot of women had because the reaction I got from India, the number of emails, there was a time when I was getting 100 emails a day. It is deeply wounding. Mm. It's deeply wounding because it's not that someone sits you down and tells you, really, we don't want you. You are a burden to us. Mm -hmm. We are so miserable. You've let us all down. No one has to say that. Is it just something you know? You know. You know. You know. I cannot remember anyone telling me. Later, I used to be, you know, uh, I was very, I hated losing. And when someone cheated, I wouldn't let them go. So Mm. I used to chase people and yes, hit them with the cricket bat. <laughs> uh, I, I really, especially usually the umpire because they made a bad decision. But I just couldn't hate, I, I would hate losing because someone yeah. was not being fair. You know, someone being fair is, is very important for me. And then these children would mock me, but there used to always be different children who didn't know each other, telling mm-hmm. me everyone cried when you were born. Uh, no one wanted you. And, you know, you're such a troublesome person. They were all right, you know, better that you were not born, better that you were dead. So I was thinking, why these people who don't know each other Mm. all saying the same thing? So sometimes I used to manage to catch a child and take them to my mother and say, this is what this kid is saying. My mother said, he's lying. And that kid would then stand in front of my mother and say, I'm lying. Mm. So that's all fine, they're lying. But it happened too many times, Mm. too many people. There's a very serious reason why the lamenting happens. Mm. People are not bad. You know, no one would hate a child. But it is a huge financial problem burden Mm. when the second girl is born because of this horrible dowry system Mm -hmm. and also this dowry system not going anywhere Mm. and then there's all this fear about protecting two girls 
getting them married, protecting their honor, making mm. sure that they're not abused, no one abducts them, you know, you shouldn't be seen talking to a boy. Mm-hmm. All these issues of a very conservative society, it's a very twisted uh, patriarchy mm-hmm. in India. Mm. And this unfortunately is being supported by the matriarchs in the family. Mm-hmm. The lamenting starts from the women mm-hmm. when a girl is born. That I find unforgivable. Mm-hmm. But no girl will raise her voice mm-hmm. because the first person you need to address is your own mother, your grandmother and your aunts, your own bloodline. Mm-hmm. You need to ask the women who share your blood, why did you cry at my birth? No one will do it. I said it and I said it in the film. I mm-hmm. thought my mother was going to find that really hard to take. Mm-hmm but she's like incredible. She sounds amazing. She was incredible because I was terrified when I, I knew when she started seeing the film and I timed it and I then called her and asked her, how do you feel? She said, I'm very upset. I said, I'm so sorry. She said, yeah, you should be. You didn't comb your hair. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> she was just angry with me for not having combed my hair. And I told her, you know, it was raining and I started explaining, you know, why my hair was so frizzy. She was like, you know, why didn't you write up my for whole conversation was about my hair. I said, you saw that bit where I said you cried when I was born? She said, yeah. But again, she went back about my hair. Brilliant. And I just thought that, you know, she is unbelievable. But there are not many children who can say it to their own mothers. Mm-hmm. And it is a festering wound on our society mm-hmm. because the shame becomes a shame of the girl mm-hmm. who was a second daughter. But the point is that I've, I could have allowed that to dictate my life but I decided that no Mm -hmm. I was going to become something so big the world would never forget my name and that was very important because everybody would just call me the second one no I have a name Mm -hmm. call me by my name but if you didn't have that shame that you lived with and the disappointment do you think you would have fought so hard to be the strength you are today no I don't think so Mm. I, I am today what I am because of where I how I was born yeah being born a second girl, I think I realized that I really needed to prove why I live. Mm-hmm. I think that because, you know, we have the highest rate of female infanticide. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in my family, it's, I know it's not done, but the figures show for themselves. We have a massive sex ratio, mm-hmm. uh, which is which shows that there mm-hmm. are disappeared girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, disappeared girls for an obvious reason. I can't imagine how it must feel to have that extra layer of knowing that you weren't supposed to be there, that you weren't wanted to be there. There's also another very uh, problematic issue, which is that, and again, no, nobody will say this. And I would not have said this if this podcast was in India, Mm -hmm. uh, because for obvious reasons that I would then be attacked, that it complicates relationships in families, because what Mm -hmm. happens is, the other young boys in the family see the lamenting that happens when the girl is born. They immediately feel superior yeah. to girls. Yeah. They won't touch that girl, but when they go out, they feel every girl is okay to touch mm-hmm. against her will. Why do we have such a high rape culture? Mm-hmm. It's so bad. It's a cycle mm-hmm. that is feeding and feeding. I don't know how we can break it. Mm. So I think you're going some way to break it by talking about this and by being open about the way it is. But it's, you know, I, I, I am in the West. Mm. My voice does reach to, the, to, to India and mm-hmm. Pakistan and Bangladesh, all the subcontinent uh, countries which all have problems with gender in- inequality. But it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for someone mm-hmm. from in there 
to raise their voice because it is they will have brought dishonor to their family. Mm. Yeah, so things yeah. can change because my family felt it and said it. They felt that I had got honor to their family. And, you know, honor is a word, you know, never used in this way for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really hard in our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, no one will ever say you brought honor to the family mm-hmm. for a girl. So you did a law degree yes. um, at the start and then you went on and we've just heard your story through to how you opened your restaurant. But because of this this shame that you felt, did you ever feel a pressure from your family to be more than, and I'm going to put more than in, in quotation marks because it's not it shouldn't be this way, but more than a cook? It helped a lot that my mother and my mother-in-law, uh, mother-in-law is also very important because, you know, in, in South Asian families, mm-hmm. you know, mother-in-laws count a lot. My mother-in-law and my mother were both so supportive, everybody had to keep quiet. I'm sure they thought I was just like ridiculously stupid. Mm-hmm. And cousins of mine were telling me like, you know, you're really dumb and, you know, you're married to a liberal man. He doesn't care what you do with your life. You know, here we have to adhere to rules. You have to mm-hmm. wear certain things. We have to, we can't go out. We can't work. And you can do everything. You're in London and what are you doing? And, you know, and my husband's very liberal. He doesn't care. Mm-hmm. I can do anything I want. But at some point, you know, culture and tradition do kick in. Mm-hmm. It would have been painful. I would have fought it. But it would have made my life hell. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure whether I would have had the courage to hurt two women I love a lot. Yeah. Uh, feeling, you know, that I'm letting them down. So, you said on the show, though, at the beginning, you always knew you were going to be something. You knew that you yeah. were going to make waves. Yeah. Do you think that came from their support? Yes. And having strong women around you? It did. Because I think that, you know, and also having strong women around and having strong women around who taught you and showed you every day that you do not kick another woman you do not push them down that to make yourself feel good Mm -hmm. you don't humiliate Mm -hmm. and you know uh, basically uh, make someone else feel inferior Mm -hmm. to feel superior Uh, Amma used to tell me this all the time that you know what really makes you feel good is you know who did you help today Mm -hmm. whose life did you change which woman hand did you hold Mm -hmm. Amma used to use that word whose hand did you hold I I hold my entire Mm -hmm. team together every day so, you know, I, I understand it's that same mm-hmm. very simple message I was told as a child, you know, just hold a woman's hand. This is the thing I think that's so wrong. Part of what's so wrong with society is that people don't realise that happiness is based not on what we've got or who we are. It's based on our community. Yeah. Um, I think something like 20% of our happiness, which is the biggest bit of our happiness, is based on the community and those around us and our relationships. But it's one of the smallest priorities. People don't put a lot of effort into the community what's happening locally the people they spend every day next to it's all about proving yourself or getting to the top or or earning more money how do you think people can make steps to be better in this way to to better make themselves happier in their communities i think the the biggest thing that they can do is actually take a hard look at themselves mm-hmm. and first love themselves for what they are because I think that this is one big problem. You can't love other people. You cannot you love, love anyone else and yeah. you cannot be a strength to someone else when you're falling apart. Mm-hmm. Too many women are too proud or or don't even give themselves that time mm-hmm. to say, I'm scarred, I'm bleeding from within. I'm really hurting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is what is hurting me. I need help. I want to talk to someone. Then I think once that happens and they heal themselves, mm-hmm. they can heal others. I think that's really important that that you realize that no amount of money and no, you know, very nice fancy title on your door or on your visiting card Mm 
can heal you. Only mm. you can. It is very, very important to have strong female role models around. Mm. That's the other thing that can help a lot. Apart from trying to heal yourself, you need, you know, I think the women need to have a network of women, mm -hmm. you know, like what you're doing, mm -hmm. you know, where they can hear the voices, mm -hmm. not just the voices, the accents. Yeah. Because I think that is really important that you need to connect to the person you're speaking to mm -hmm. at some level with something. So some people might connect to my Asian accent, mm -hmm. the others to my journey, the others to just being a woman, mm. a mother or, you know. But, but you sound like you've been brought up and been backed by very strong women. Yeah, and I think that that makes a huge difference that, you know, my mother would always tell me that, you know, you are absolutely the best. But in the Restaurant Awards, which is uh, next week, my restaurant is ranked in the top 100 restaurants in the UK. Mm -hmm. And most of that list is dominated by Michelin star thing. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. You know, I was more concerned what I was going to wear and go. And everyone around was like, you're crazy. Don't you feel like this is incredible? I said, no, I don't think. I deserve to be there. Yeah. You know, I'm going to turn up the party. You know, I'm going to bring the color in the party because yeah. it's just. Yeah. How has the reaction been to you bringing such a feminine feel and a feminine vibe in your kitchen? And Everyone is very kind. So far, no one has said anything. Only one person called me a fat, middle-aged housewife. But that was the only mean thing someone has said to me. But people aren't kind because we've worked really hard and our food is beautiful mm -hmm. and our team is incredible. So, I, you know, for people who are working so hard, absolutely. And all these women are completely, they're never surprised when anything, you know, amazing happens or they get an award. Mm -hmm. and but that is just because everybody stands by each other saying, you are amazing. Mm -hmm. If women do this to each other, we would all, we'd rule the world. Yeah, and there would be no wars. Yeah. You've described the Darjeeling Express kitchen as an oasis for women, which yeah. I think is a wonderful description. And did you have this idea or expectation that you would create something so magic out of nothing? No. I mean, I can lie now and say, yes, that planned it. No, mm -hmm. I didn't. I was just taking it one step at a time. I really just wanted to do beautiful food. Mm -hmm. I wanted to look after everybody like as if they come to my house. I wanted to recreate the magic of the supper clubs you know, make everyone feel very special. I wanted to serve every table. I saw this as a way of service, mm. uh, you know, and cooking and serving was, that excited me and excited all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, we realized that there is something else also happening, which is this is a space to heal. Mm -hmm. We were not feeding, we were nourishing souls. And we were giving everybody that moment of peace and calm. Mm -hmm. People left their ego at the door of the restaurant, uh, you know, and, there was a simplicity and a kind of, you know, almost like childlike way that people were eating mm -hmm. uh, this very, you know, simple food cooked with a lot of love. Mm -hmm. We took people back to a time when they were much younger and in a house where someone loved them and cooked for them. And I think that I could see in the eyes of people that journey that they were making. Someone just wrote, you know, on, on Instagram, uh, something which I think is very significant because I always think of this, that, you know, I left that restaurant yearning for a place that I didn't even know existed. And yeah. now I want to go back there. Mm. So that's what we do. Mm -hmm. And that's what I realized once we started feeding people that they all, their reaction and comments was always that, mm -hmm. that you've taken me back to my childhood. You know, if my nan cooked Indian food, she would cook like this. And that's when I realized, yes, we are an oasis. Mm. Because in this space, you suddenly realize what is very important in your own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, safety and comfort and love yeah. and connection. Absolutely. My last question, I'm asking all the guests, if 
uh, time, money, training wasn't an issue, location, where would you be? What kind of life would you be living if you could do anything? I, I'm trying right now to do it. Uh, I'm going to the Yazidi camps in northern Iraq, setting mm-hmm. up an all-female kitchen Wow! in a refugee camp. Yeah. Uh, that is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I want, if I had a lot of money, I would open cafes and restaurants in conflict zones mm-hmm. uh, where women could actually be a collective mm-hmm. and heal this mm-hmm. way. Because in wars, women are the ones who hurt the most. Mm-hmm. But my dream would be through food, uh, they find peace mm-hmm. and their way home. Yeah. And you also have a book out, don't yes. you? Yes, um, I have a book out and it's uh, it's called Asma's Indian Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on a lot of the bookshops as well. And everybody says it works. So, you know, our cooking is very mm-hmm. simple, very basic, but huge amount of flavors. We get bangs for the bucks by, you know, using the spices in an innovative way. Mm-hmm. In the book, I explain that. Yeah. So people all, whoever cooks comes back and says, oh my God, you know, our food will never taste the same again because I teach you how every spice you take, you bring it to life. Asma Khan, thank you so much. It's been a real inspiration talking to you and um, I think you're wonderful. I think the work you're doing is wonderful and groundbreaking. Um, So it's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you very much. So if you're feeling inspired to make the most of your backup plan, great. This is just the start. We'd love to know your thoughts about the backup plan, so please leave us a review and a rating. And for all your weekly updates, hit the subscribe button. Before I go, I want to say a final shout out to the amazing team over at Etsy. Head to Etsy.com to buy directly from someone who put their heart and soul into making something special. Until next time.